Section 19 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 4. On Charity and Humour, by Thackeray. Born in 1811, died in 1863, lived in India until he was five years old, educated at Cambridge, lived several years on the continent, began to write for newspapers in 1833, went to Paris to study art in 1834, visited the East in 1844, visited the United States in 1852, and again in 1854. Delivered in New York City in 1852 on behalf of a charitable organization, Thackeray at this time was lecturing in New York on the English humorists. Besides contributing to our stock of happiness, to our harmless laughter and amusement, to our scorn for falsehood and pretension, to our righteous hatred of hypocrisy, to our education in the perception of truth, our love of honesty, our knowledge of life, and shrewd guidance through the world, have not our humorous writers, our gay and kind weekday preachers, done much in support of that holy cause which has assembled you in this place, and which you are all abetting, the cause of love and charity, the cause of the poor, the weak, and the unhappy? the sweet mission of love and tenderness, and peace and goodwill toward men. That same theme which is urged upon you by the eloquence and example of good men to whom you are delighted listeners on Sabbath days, is taught in his way, and according to his power, by the humorous writer, the commentator on everyday life and manners. And as you are here assembled for a charitable purpose, giving your contributions at the door to benefit deserving people who need them, I like to hope and think that the men of our calling have done something in aid of the cause of charity, and have helped, with kind words and kind thoughts at least, to confer happiness and to do good. If the humorous writers claim to be weekday preachers, have they conferred any benefit by their sermons? Are people happier? Better, better disposed to their neighbours, more inclined to do works of kindness, to love, forbear, forgive, pity, after reading in Addison, in Steele, in Fielding, in Goldsmith, in Hood, in Dickens? I hope and believe so, and fancy that in writing they are also acting charitably, contributing with the means which heaven supplies them to forward the end which brings you two together. A love of the human species is a very vague and indefinite kind of virtue, sitting very easily on a man, not confining his actions at all, shining in print or exploding in paragraphs, after which efforts of benevolence the philanthropist is sometimes said to go home and be no better than his neighbours. Tartuffe and Joseph Surface, Stiggins and Chadband, 
who are always preaching fine sentiments and are no more virtuous than hundreds of those whom they denounce and whom they cheat, are fair objects of mistrust and satire. But their hypocrisy, the homage, according to the old saying, which vice pays to virtue, has this of good in it, that its fruits are good. A man may preach good morals, though he may be himself but a lax practitioner. A Pharisee may put pieces of gold into the charity plate, out of mere hypocrisy and ostentation. But the bad man's gold feeds the widow and the fatherless, as well as the good man's. The butcher and baker must needs look, not to motives, but to money, in return for their wares. A literary man of the humoristic turn is pretty sure to be of a philanthropic nature, to have a great sensibility, to be easily moved to pain or pleasure, keenly to appreciate the varieties of temper of people round him, and sympathise in their laughter, love, amusement, tears. Such a man is philanthropic, man-loving by nature, as another is irascible, or red-haired, or six feet high. And so I would arrogate no particular merit to literary men for the possession of this faculty of doing good, which some of them enjoy. It costs a gentleman no sacrifice to be benevolent on paper, and the luxury of indulging in the most beautiful and brilliant sentiments never makes any man a penny poorer. A literary man is no better than another, as far as my experience goes, and a man writing a book, no better or no worse than one who keeps accounts in a ledger, or follows any other occupation. Let us, however, give him credit for the good, at least, which he is the means of doing, as we give credit to a man with a million for the hundred which he puts into the plate at a charity sermon. He never misses them. He has made them in a moment by a lucky speculation, and parts with them knowing that he has an almost endless balance at his bank, whence he can call for more. But in esteeming the benefaction, we are grateful to the benefactor too, somewhat, and so of men of genius, richly endowed, and lavish in parting with their mind's wealth, we may view them at least kindly and favourably, and be thankful for the bounty of which providence has made them the dispensers. I have said myself somewhere, I do not know with what correctness, for definitions never are complete, that humour is wit and love. I am sure, at any rate, that the best humour is that which contains most humanity, that which is flavoured throughout with tenderness and kindness. This love does not demand constant utterance or actual expression, as a good father, in conversation with his children or wife, is not perpetually embracing them or making protestations of his love, as a lover in the society of his mistress is not, at least as far as I am led to believe, forever squeezing her hand or sighing in her ear, My soul's darling, I adore you. He shows his love by his conduct, by his fidelity, by his watchful desire to make the beloved person happy. It lightens from his eyes when she appears, though he may not speak it. It fills his heart when she is present or absent, influences all his words and actions, suffuses his whole being. It sets the father cheerily to work through the long day, 
supports him through the tedious labour of the weary absence or journey, and sends him happy home again, yearning toward the wife and children. This kind of love is not a spasm, but a life. It fondles and caresses at due seasons, no doubt, but the fond heart is always beating fondly and truly, though the wife is not sitting hand in hand with him, or the children hugging at his knee, and so with a loving humour. I think it is a genial writer's habit of being. It is the kind, gentle spirit's way of looking out on the world, that sweet friendliness which fills his heart and his style. You recognise it, even though there may not be a single point of wit or a single pathetic touch in the page, though you may not be called upon to salute his genius by a laugh or a tear. That collision of ideas, which provokes the one or the other, must be occasional. They must be like Papa's embraces, which I spoke of anon, who only delivers them now and again, and cannot be expected to go on kissing the children all night. And so the writer's jokes and sentiment, his ebullitions of feeling, his outbreaks of high spirits, must not be too frequent. One tires of a page of which every sentence sparkles with points, of a sentimentalist who is always pumping the tears from his eyes, or your own. One suspects the genuineness of the tear, the naturalness of the humour. These ought to be true and manly in a man, as everything else in his life should be manly and true, and he loses his dignity by laughing or weeping out of place, or too often. If I do not love Swift, as, thank God, I do not, however immensely I may admire him, it is because I revolt from the man who placards himself as a professional hater of his own kind, because he chisels his savage indignation on his tombstone, as if to perpetuate his protest against being born of our race, the suffering, the weak, the erring, the wicked, if you will, but still the friendly, the loving children of God our Father. It is because, as I read through Swift's dark volumes, I never find the aspect of nature seems to delight him, the smiles of children to please him, the sight of wedded love to soothe him. I do not remember in any line of his writing a passing allusion to a natural scene of beauty. When he speaks about the families of his comrades and brother clergymen, it is to assail them with jibes and scorn, and to laugh at them brutally for being fathers and for being poor. He does mention, in the journal to Stella, a sick child, to be sure, a child of Lady Masham that was ill of the smallpox. But then it is to confound the brat for being ill, and the mother for attending to it, when she should have been busy about a court intrigue in which the dean was deeply engaged. And he alludes to a suitor of Stella's, and a match she might have made, and would have made very likely, with an honourable and faithful and attached man, Tisdall, who loved her, and of whom Swift speaks, in a letter to his lady, in language so foul that you would not bear to hear it. In treating of the good the humorists have done, of the love and kindness they have taught and left behind them, it is not of this one I dare speak. Heaven help the lonely misanthrope, 
be kind to that multitude of sins, with so little charity to cover them. Of Addison's contributions to the charity of the world, I have spoken before, in trying to depict that noble figure, and say now, as then, that we should thank him as one of the greatest benefactors of that vast and immeasurably spreading family which speaks our common tongue. Wherever it is spoken, there is no man that does not feel and understand and use the noble English word gentleman. And there is no man that teaches us to be gentlemen better than Joseph Addison. Gentle in our bearing through life, gentle and courteous to our neighbour, gentle in dealing with his follies and weaknesses, gentle in treating his opposition, deferential to the old, kindly to the poor and those below us in degree, for people above us and below us we must find, in whatever hemisphere we dwell, whether kings or presidents govern us, and in no republic or monarchy that I know of, is a citizen exempt from the tax of befriending poverty and weakness, of respecting age, and of honouring his father and mother. It has just been whispered to me, I have not been three months in the country, and of course cannot venture to express an opinion of my own, that in regard to paying this later tax of respect and honour to age, some very few of the Republican youths are occasionally a little remiss. I have heard of young sons of freedom publishing their Declaration of Independence before they could well spell it, and cutting the connection with father and mother before they had learned to shave. My own time of life having been stated by various enlightened organs of public opinion at almost any figure from 45 to 60, I cheerfully own that I belong to the fogey interest, and ask leave to rank in and plead for that respectable class. Now a gentleman can but be a gentleman in Broadway, or the backwoods, in Pall Mall, or California, and where, and whenever he lives, thousands of miles away in the wilderness, or hundreds of years hence, I am sure that reading the writings of this true gentleman, this true Christian, this noble Joseph Addison, must do him good. Steele, as a literary benefactor to the world's charity, must rank very high indeed, not merely from his givings, which were abundant, but because his endowments are prodigiously increased in value since he bequeathed them, as the revenues of the lands bequeathed to our foundling hospital at London by honest Captain Coram, its founder, are immensely enhanced by the houses since built upon them. Steele was the founder of sentimental writing in English, and how the land has been since occupied, and what hundreds of us have laid out gardens and built up tenements on Steele's ground. Before his time, readers or hearers were never called upon to cry except at a tragedy, and compassion was not expected to express itself otherwise than in blank verse, or for personages much lower in rank than a dethroned monarch or a widowed or a jilted empress. He stepped off the high-heeled Cothurnus and came down into common life. He held out his great hearty arms and embraced us all. He had a bow for all women, a kiss for all children, a shake of the hand for all men, 
high or low. He showed us heaven's sun shining every day on quiet homes, not gilded palace roofs only, or court processions, or heroic warriors fighting for princesses and pitched battles. He took away comedy from behind the fine lady's alcove, or the screen where the libertine was watching her. He ended all that wretched business of wives jeering at their husbands, of rakes laughing wives, and husbands too, to scorn. That miserable, rouged, tawdry, sparkling, hollow-hearted comedy of the Restoration fled before him, and, like the wicked spirit in the fairy books, shrank, as steel let the daylight in, and shrieked and shuddered, and vanished. The stage of humorists has been common life ever since Steele's and Addison's time. The joys and griefs, the aversions and sympathies, the laughter and tears of nature. As for Goldsmith, if the youngest and most unlettered person here has not been happy with the family at Wakefield, has not rejoiced when Olivia returned, and been thankful for her forgiveness and restoration, has not laughed with delighted good humour over Moses's gross of green spectacles, has not loved with all his heart the good vicar, and that kind spirit which created these charming figures, and devised the beneficent fiction which speaks to us so tenderly, what call is there for me to speak? In this place, and on this occasion, remembering these men, I claim from you your sympathy for the good they have done, and for the sweet charity which they have bestowed on the world. In our days, in England, the importance of the humorous preacher has prodigiously increased. His audiences are enormous. Every week or month, his happy congregations flock to him. They never tire of such sermons. I believe my friend Mr. Punch is as popular today as he has been any day since his birth. I believe that Mr. Dickens' readers are even more numerous than they have ever been since his unrivalled pen commenced to delight the world with its humour. We have among us other literary parties. We have Punch, as I have said, preaching from his booth. We have a Gerald party, very numerous, and faithful to that acute thinker and distinguished wit. And we have also, it must be said, and it is still to be hoped, a Vanity Fair party, the author of which work has lately been described by the London Times newspaper as a writer of considerable parts, but a dreary misanthrope, who sees no good anywhere, who sees the sky above him green, I think, instead of blue, and only miserable sinners round about him. So we are, so is every writer and every reader I ever heard of, so was every being who ever trod this earth, save one. I cannot help telling the truth as I view it, and describing what I see. To describe it otherwise than it seems to me would be falsehood in that calling in which it has pleased heaven to place me. Treason to that conscience which says that men are weak, that truth must be told, that fault must be owned, that pardon must be prayed for and that love reigns supreme over all. I look back at the good which of late years the kind English humorists have done, and if you are pleased to rank the present speaker among that class, I own to an honest pride 
at thinking what benefit society has derived from men of our calling. That Song of the Shirt, which Punch first published, and the noble, the suffering, the melancholy, the tenderhood sang, may surely rank as a great act of charity to the world, and call from it its thanks and regard for its teacher and benefactor. That astonishing poem, which all of you know, of the Bridge of Sighs, who can read it without tenderness, without reverence to heaven, charity to man, and thanks to the beneficent genius which sang for us nobly? I never saw the writer but once, but shall always be glad to think that some words of mine, printed in a periodical of that day, and in praise of those amazing verses, which, strange to say, appeared almost unnoticed at first in the magazine in which Mr. Hood published them. I am proud, I say, to think that some words of appreciation of mine reached him on his deathbed, and pleased and soothed him in that hour of manful resignation and pain. As for the charities of Mr. Dickens, multiplied kindnesses which he has conferred upon us all, upon our children, upon people educated and uneducated, upon the myriads here and at home who speak our common tongue, have not you, have not I, all of us reason to be thankful to this kind friend, who soothed and charmed so many hours, brought pleasure and sweet laughter to so many homes, made such multitudes of children happy, endowed us with such a sweet store of gracious thoughts, fair fancies, soft sympathies, hearty enjoyments. There are creations of Mr. Dickens which seem to me to rank as personal benefits, figures so delightful that one feels happier and better for knowing them, as one does for being brought into the society of very good men and women. The atmosphere in which these people live is wholesome to breathe in, you feel that to be allowed to speak to them is a personal kindness. You come away better for your contact with them. Your hands seem cleaner from having the privilege of shaking theirs. Was there ever a better charity sermon preached in the world than Dickens' Christmas Carol? I believe it occasioned immense hospitality throughout England, was the means of lighting up hundreds of kind fires at Christmas time caused a wonderful outpouring of Christmas good feeling, of Christmas punch brewing, an awful slaughter of Christmas turkeys, and roasting and basting of Christmas beef. As for this man's love of children, that amiable organ at the back of his honest head must be perfectly monstrous. All children ought to love him. I know two that do, and read his books ten times for once that they peruse the dismal preachments of their father. I know one who, when she is happy, reads Nicholas Nickleby. When she is unhappy, reads Nicholas Nickleby. When she is tired, reads Nicholas Nickleby. When she is in bed, reads Nicholas Nickleby. When she has nothing to do, reads Nicholas Nickleby and when she has finished the book, reads Nicholas Nickleby over again. This candid young critic, at ten years of age, said, I like Mr. Dickens' books much better than your books, Papa. 
and frequently expressed her desire that the latter author should write a book like one of Mr. Dickens's books. Who can? Every man must say his own thoughts in his own voice, in his own way. Lucky is he who has such a charming gift of nature as this, which brings all the children in the world trooping to him and being fond of him. I remember, when that famous Nicholas Nickleby came out, seeing a letter from a pedagogue in the north of England, which, dismal as it was, was immensely comical. Mr. Dickens' ill-advised publication, wrote the poor schoolmaster, has passed like a whirlwind over the schools of the north. He was a proprietor of a cheap school. Dotherboys Hall was a cheap school. There were many such establishments in the northern counties. Parents were ashamed that never were ashamed before until the kind satirist laughed at them. Relatives were frightened. Scores of little scholars were taken away. Poor schoolmasters had to shut their shops up. Every pedagogue was voted a squeers, and many suffered, no doubt unjustly. But afterward, schoolboys' backs were not so much caned, schoolboys' meat was less tough and more plentiful, and schoolboys' milk was not so sky-blue. What a kind light of benevolence it is that plays round crummels and the phenomenon and all those poor theatre people in that charming book. What a humour, and what a good humour! One might go on, though the task would be endless and needless, chronicling the names of kind folks with whom this kind genius has made us familiar. Who does not love the Marchioness and Mr. Richard Swiveller? Who does not sympathise, not only with Oliver Twist, but his admirable young friend, the Artful Dodger? Who has not the inestimable advantage of possessing a Mrs. Nickleby in his own family? Who does not bless Sairy Gamp and wonder at Mrs. Harris? Who does not venerate the chief of that illustrious family, who, being stricken by misfortune, wisely and greatly turned his attention to Coles, the accomplished, the epicurean, the dirty, the delightful Micawber? I may quarrel with Mr. Dickens' art a thousand and a thousand times. I delight and wonder at his genius. I recognise in it, I speak with awe and reverence, a commission from that divine beneficence whose blessed task we know it will one day be to wipe every tear from every eye. Thankfully, I take my share of the feast of love and kindness which this gentle and generous and charitable soul has contributed to the happiness of the world. I take and enjoy my share and say a benediction for the meal. End of section 19